This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, September 14th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. September 11th, 2001 forever changed how millions of people think about the relative safety of the United States. But September 14th, 2001, when Congress approved an open-ended resolution on the use of force, has changed for 16 years how the United States engages with the world. Gene Healy, vice president at the Cato Institute, talks about this less appreciated anniversary. I don't think it will get as much attention as the 16-year anniversary of September 11th, but uh, in some ways it may have been more important. There's the hackneyed phrase, September 11th changed everything, but in many ways maybe it was the authorization for the use of force that Congress passed three days after September 11th that changed everything. Okay, so – what was included within that agreement and what has that agreement been used to justify? Well, it's only 60 words long. Obviously, at the time, uh, just after September 11th, the target was al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Uh, it, uh, the, the operative clause of the, the resolution just says the president uh, is empowered to use military action all necessary and appropriate force against uh, the perpetrators of the September 11th attacks and anyone who harbored, aided, and abetted them. Uh, And at the time, the people who passed it didn't sound like they thought they were authorizing an open-ended multi-generational war. Uh, You know, Joe Biden uh, made a a big deal out of how this resolution is nothing like the Gulf of Tonkin resolution that that authorized the Vietnam War, that this, this resolution was far more limited. Well, it, it has now uh, been in, in use for over twice as long as the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. Uh, it's, and it's been used to authorize military force in multiple countries, bomb eight countries, Uh, and uh, put boots on the ground uh, covertly and overtly in in many others. It it has really uh, been uh, transformational. Uh, It's not that presidents before 9-11 didn't engage in uh, frolic and detours, uh, unauthorized uses of presidential force. you know, and uh, some of those could be pretty significant, uh, but most of uh, the presidential wars that we grew up with, things like Grenada and Panama, uh, were short, sharp departures from a peacetime norm. Uh, that has been entirely flipped. Uh, constant military activity is the baseline norm, and peace is the departure. Uh, so you've seen two. Well, three imperial presidents in a row expand the parameters of this and really turn it into a, an open-ended justification and a blank check for military action against an ever-expanding host of jihadist groups, many of which did not exist uh, on 9-11. Uh, you saw Barack Obama uh, launch 10 times as many drone strikes as his predecessor, George W. Bush. Uh, He left office as the first two-term president in American history to have been at war every single day of his presidency. And in the last year of that presidency, 
He dropped over 26,000 bombs, most of them under the authority of the or the supposed authority of this 2001 AUMF. When Joe Biden says that it was limited, it wasn't limited in the very real sense that it expired. No. Uh, in fact, uh, in uh, both the Bush and the Obama administrations, you had top Pentagon officials uh, saying that this is a generational struggle, that there is no end in sight to the authorities uh, uh, delegated uh, under the 2001 AUMF. Uh, you, you hear 10 to 20 years or generational struggle, which means uh, you know this, this authorization could be around for the kill list for the Barron Trump administration, uh, that the, the, uh, the expansive way that things are going. Uh, so in terms of trying to claw that back, if the United States is, is constantly at war, I can envision a set of circumstances in which uh, these uh, resolutions are repealed or uh, are ca caused to expire and the wars don't stop. Well, that would be uh, something to worry about. Uh, you know, President Trump certainly has an expansive view of his own uh, constitutional authority quite apart from any statutory authorization. Uh, you know, he, he, he has said or is uh, uh, Sean Spicer when, when uh, back in April when he was uh, press secretary asked about – when he was asked about whether uh, Trump was prepared to act alone in North Korea said, you know, well, we'll notify Congress but uh, I think if he does anything, he's going to do it using his authorities under Article 2, so uh, uh, the Constitution granting the executive power. Um, so there is always a danger that uh, presidents uh, will uh, take an expansive view of their constitutional authorities. Uh, that view is wrong and, uh, you know, pursue war without authorization. However, uh, the Trump administration even now is relying on the 2001 AUMF to do quite a bit. Uh, there's their uh, uh, troop surge into Afghanistan, uh, make Afghanistan great again plan. Uh, there's, uh, there was a report recently that they are uh, thinking about authorizing a new round of drone strikes uh, in the Philippines and uh, – they have sent a letter to the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, Senator Corker, saying that they don't see any need for any new authorization or any revision of the 2001 AUMF. Uh, they're perfectly happy with it and why wouldn't they be? Because it doesn't, uh, it doesn't restrain anything. Uh, Lyndon Johnson once said about the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, he, he compared it to grandma's nightshirt because it covers everything. Uh, and the 2001 AUMF is, if anything, far more expansive as it's been interpreted by our last three presidents. All right. So what efforts exist? I mean, you, you would think that uh, Democrats would be pushing fairly hard to restrain at least this president from engaging in uh, open-ended war. There are some hopeful signs in, in that regard. Uh, I think that there is more of a bipartisan 
uh, understanding that uh, th that this is not the way that constitutional democracies are supposed to go to war. I think that has come to be more appreciated. Uh, in back in June, uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, uh, who was the only member to vote against the original authorization. And I would commend to people her floor speech on the day that uh, that vote was taken. It's uh, it's worth um, going through. Well, she's turned out to be entirely right. Uh, she uh, was pushing an amendment uh, uh, to def uh, the defense appropriations bill uh, revoking the authorization, the 2001 AUMF, within eight months. Uh, and she actually got some Republican support for that, uh, a number of Republican uh, veterans who, who thought that uh, people like uh, Congressman Scott Taylor, the former Navy SEAL, who, who thought that uh, it's just unconscionable to, to ask uh, people to, to risk their lives uh, under an authorization that was passed uh, before Steve Jobs uh, released the first iPod and uh, back when uh, the United States, uh, 16 years is a long time. I mean, we actually had a budget surplus when, when this, uh, when the 2001 AUMF was passed. Uh, so she uh, got some support for that, even though the Republican leadership buried it. And uh, just recently, Senator Rand Paul, uh, you know, formerly known as the most interesting man in the Senate, has uh, sort of proved that he's at least the the biggest troublemaker in the Senate, he uh, issued a filibuster threat uh, to uh, hold up the defense appropriations bill and actually secured uh, some time for a debate. Uh, he had to, had to twist arms and threaten uh, to hold up uh, the ordinary course of business in order to just get a debate over this now 16-year-old uh, authorization for the use of force. So I think there, there is some indication on both sides of the aisle that uh, this has gone on far too long uh, and has been far too costly. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, but again, this is not uh, the way that a constitutional democracy is supposed to make the most important decision it can make. You, the, the notion that, um, you know, there's one congressional vote 16 years ago and it's one Congress, one vote, one time is not something that uh, Congress and the American people should stand for. Gene Healy is a vice president at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 